It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. We're here today for the 22nd Housing Accelerator Fund announcement. This is really about all of us coming together to respond to uh, the challenges that communities and individuals are facing right across the country. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in St. John, New Brunswick yesterday with yet another housing announcement, $9.1 million for housing in that city. While the government tries to address the cost of living, many Canadians are still struggling, as are the Liberals' polling numbers. Add to that controversial vacation and criticism of the federal government's immigration policy. And so we have convened our national affairs panel to talk about all of that and more. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. She is in snowy Vancouver. Carrie Tate is a reporter with the Globe and Mail in Calgary. Stephanie Levitz is deputy Ottawa bureau chief for the Toronto Star. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. An election is not happening tomorrow, Shachi, but it, the polls suggest that things are not particularly great at this moment for the Liberals. How dire is it? Uh, yes, things are pretty rotten in the state of Denmark. If the state of Denmark was uh, the voting fortunes of the Liberal Party, um, you know, depending, there's been a lot of polling out, uh, but if you if you sort of look at the trend over time, 2023 was defined as the year for the first time in years and years where the Conservatives took a lead, held a lead, and built an ever-widening cavernous lead Mm. over the Liberals. Uh, And that's something, as I say, we we haven't seen in the better part of a decade. Uh, Call it the fatigue factor with the Liberals. Call it uh, people just looking for a different voice or, or just feeling... Um, that in many cases, whether it's been housing or other issues, those those darn carbon tax rebates, um, the Liberals have have missed moments uh, along the way where it, things shouldn't have gotten so off track for them, but really did. You mentioned housing. If there were one or two issues from your polling, as you understand it, that Canadians care about the most, what would they be? Housing certainly would be one of them, I would think. Uh, chronically and over the last two years, we've really seen just a general uh, issue that that we call the cost of living mm. really dominating everything. So uh, into that, what are the big drivers? Uh, the cost of rent, the cost of your mortgage if you're paying one, the cost of groceries, the cost of gasoline, the cost of basically everything that it is for your basics to live. Uh, that is at the top of the list. Housing affordability as its own separate entity and bucket is also at the top. And then people are really dialed into um, what they see at the provincial level, uh, even though they they indicated as a federal issue, just around the broken state of healthcare delivery in this country. Stephanie Levitz, the Prime Minister, as I mentioned, was in St. John yesterday for a housing announcement. He certainly was asked about that, but he was also asked about what he did over the holidays and a trip to Jamaica. What is the issue here? <laughs> 
It's a, it's a great question, Matt, because the issue, you know, the prime minister said something um, in his response to the question that raised a lot of eyebrows. And it was, like many Canadians, I stayed with friends over the holidays. He said that in French. So is the issue that the prime minister took a vacation? No. Is the issue that he stayed with friends over the holidays? Probably not. Is the issue that where he went and who he was with feeds right into the conservatives' narrative of a prime minister who is an elite, out-of-touch person who thinks he understands what's going on with Canadians, but has the friends he stayed with, Matt, run a luxury estate in Jamaica, and he stayed there for free. It's an optics issue. You know, the prime minister says all the rules were followed, that the trip was cleared to some degree with the ethics commissioner, whatever that means, we're not sure. Um, so it feeds into what the conservatives have been trying to argue now. And, you know, as Sachi points out with the, the number suggesting it's landed, that he just doesn't get what is facing Canadians on the regular and isn't in touch with their concerns and therefore, in the conservatives' point of view, is a bad leader for the country. Is this an issue? I mean, he said, uh, to your point, that no (laughs) rules were broken. This isn't, though, the first time that the Prime Minister vacation has created headaches. People will remember, of course, his trip uh, with the family to the Aga Khan's private island. Uh, And there are other trips that he has taken that have caused headaches within certainly the Prime Minister's office, if not um, within the party itself. Is is this actually a thing, or is it just another thing that that the conservatives and, and opposition parties can latch on to? Probably both is the answer. I think there are legitimate questions we can be asking about the ethics regime in this country and why it is that the prime minister can accept a gift um, of the value attached to the stay in this resort. And that seems to be fine. I think that's a valid question. But as I say, with the conservatives, and they were doing this before the current leader, Pierre Polyev, right? I mean, their narrative, think about how they attacked Michael Ignati a million years ago. He didn't come back for you. Their narrative has always been that liberals <clears throat> do not get the pulse of the people. And this is just another example on you know the road they're trying to make to an election campaign where this issue is going to be top of mind. And so in the face of that, Kerry, uh, the Liberals will head to a caucus retreat next week in Montreal. Uh, This is in the lead up to the return of Parliament on Monday. How unified is this party right now? It feels like this caucus retreat, that there might be some venting going on, maybe a little more venting than those types of team building exercises where you don't want to be going to a caucus retreat and still having to explain to your colleagues why you came up with two different answers for a vacation. Um, the two different answers were one that, <laughs> that that he was going to be or that the prime minister would be covering the cost of the vacation and then that there would be actually no cost. Right. That, that's not something really that um, is going to please your colleagues. And right now there's those regional differences within the caucus are probably going to come out. I think we'll see some, or I think there would be rumblings about the way that different regions are treated, and particularly when you look at something like the carbon tax, which we were talking about at the end of last year, and of course still talking about into 2024. Why? It's interesting. CBC did some reporting on this, that, that people will be getting their rebates for the carbon tax, many Canadians, this week. And yet there are a number of Canadians who still don't know that they are getting those rebates, that the rebates are coming. How big of an issue is is that when it comes to communication, Carrie? I suppose uh, uh, just on the direct deposits, there's a communication issue there. But I think even there, like it, they really are losing the war on the purpose of the carbon tax and why they're doing it, what everyone gets out of it. But um, Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives have really made it an affordability issue. Mm. And it's sort of, it's 
run away from them and they can't really reel it back with some good communication and commercials and mailing. Shachi, you used the phrase fatigue factor earlier. How much of that is directed at the prime minister himself, at Justin Trudeau? You know, not not to pile on to the PM because we've we've spent a lot of time talking about things that he's not maybe doing the best job at these days. But uh, it this this is what happens, Matt, when you build a party and a government around a single personality. The Liberal Party since 2013-2014 has been defined by Justin Trudeau. It is his party. And so the branding around it, the communication around it, the top communicators around it have all been Justin Trudeau all the time, with some exceptions. But when you are into a situation where you make it about one person, it leaves far less room to pivot uh, to to maybe uh, withdraw the PM to the background a little bit and put other communicators and other government members out there, mm. with the exception of Christian Freeland, how how many Canadians could actually name, say, five or six members of cabinet? I I would defy them to do that unless they're obviously listeners to this August show. August, um, thank you. So so what you have is people aren't just tired of liberal government. They are personally tired of Justin Trudeau. Um, and I've always said he is the party's greatest asset, still a very effective campaigner, can still draw a crowd when he's on, he's on. And says in he's, interviews he's going nowhere. Yes, exactly. But, but also the party's worst liability. Um, and so that has been very much the double-edged sword uh, that cut one way for them for the first six years of, of government and has really been cutting into their own flesh over the last couple of years. In the face of that, Stephanie, you wrote a piece in The Star about how conservatives are trying to appeal to younger voters. What are they doing specifically? So one of the things they're, I mean, they're doing two things, I would argue. One is Mr. Polyev's prowess on social media and trying to meet uh, the younger cohort of voters where they are through digital advertising, targeted ads on Facebook, the viral videos. He's become quite popular. That's one piece of it. And the other is trying to recruit candidates who can do that similarly to him, perhaps reaching out to a different demographic within the bigger youth cohort. So, you know, he's he's rounding up candidates now. Um, people like uh, former broadcaster community advocate Jamil Giovanni will carry the party's banner in the riding of Durham. He's, I believe, 36 years old. Uh, yesterday, um, a prominent conservative commentator, Sabrina Maddow, who's also in her 30s, announced her intention to try and run for office. So he's looking to put sort of a fresh, youthful, energetic face on the party to stand in contrast with what the conservatives will argue is a tired liberal front bench. They're too old. They've been around too long, both you know politically and also demographically. And try and I think to some degree, Matt, avoid the mistake that Justin Trudeau has made, which is make the party all about him. There's a lot of analogies and similarities between Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau, even though the two men would hate to hear that. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but the energy, the, the vigor, the enthusiasm that younger voters have right now for Pierre Polyev is very reminiscent of how younger voters really flocked to Justin Trudeau in 2015. And I think the conservatives, um, it seems to me when I speak to them, are quite mindful of the risk 
of making Pierre Polyev the only conservative that anyone has ever heard of. Let, let me ask Sachi about that, because Sabrina Mato, uh, who announced, as uh, Stephanie said, that she's going to be running for the conservatives in the next election, said she's doing this because, and these are her words, Trudeau abandoned my generation. Is that true, Shachi, in terms of the research that you've done? What have you, what have you seen when it comes to a demographic shift in support of, of the liberals and conservatives when it comes to young people in particular? One thing has really just sent liberal fortunes spiraling, and that is the cost of living crisis. When we think about Sabrina Matto or, or many of our own generation, um, this is the first time in the adult lives of a total generational cohort of Canadians who have ever experienced what it is to worry about your bank balance, to worry about making rent, to worry about uh, interest rates or filling a gas tank. Those are things that, that those were our parents' problems. Double digit interest rates were our parents' problems. Things being expensive and inflation, that was stuff our parents or our grandparents dealt with. So this has been in many ways, an absolute slap in the face to uh, to uh, to millennials and also to to older Gen Z Canadians who are out of the houses, out of their parents' houses. So against that backdrop, the communications of virtue, which has been the communication of the governing liberals for a really long time, pay the carbon tax, not because it's revenue neutral or because you get a rebate, but because it's the right thing to do and we're the only ones fighting climate change. That is where the liberals really failed to pivot again around their approach to this generation um, and, and really authentically communicate that they understand what's been going on. Mm. And when you've got a prime minister who and i'm not it's i'm not picking on him personally but when you are born to privilege you cannot authentically communicate that you know what it's like now there are a lot of liberal caucus members who do arguably know what it's like either because they grew up that way or they themselves come came from more modest means why is why are we not hearing from those people i do just want to add one thing very quickly around uh, the so-called youth movement for the conservatives and for Pierre Poliev, there is a massive gender gap on that. There is a total gender split. Young men, 18 to 34, and in fact, in all age demographics, are all in on Pierre Poliev mm. and the conservatives. Young women and middle-aged women, not at all. So, so when we talk about the, the youth factor, we have to temper it with the gender factor. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Kerry, when we talk about the cost of living, I mean, the assumption is that interest rates, he says, with his fingers crossed, will be on their way down or down significantly by the time the next election is held. How much are the Liberals banking on that? That the economic picture in particular will have changed and that that cost of living may be less of a, a an existential crisis for Canadians? I will, that's tricky. It better change fast uh, because a lot of people have... Um, 
first they, you know, Justin Trudeau lost his shine and people became attracted to um, another political movement and then to win them back over by something that, you know, say, oh, the economy turned around when you can't necessarily point to something that, you know, he's going to need something to say, I did this. And of course, they always try to take credit for the greater economy, but that's going to be pretty tricky unless people suddenly have um, new places that they're living and are feel that there's actually more money in their genes, the idea of sort of uh, the, an economic turnaround is really hard to, uh, it doesn't resonate mm. as much with people have already turned angry. Is there anything they can do then to change the storyline? Ooh, um, Again, it's something I think, even though if you, even if you think the election is two years away, it is something I think that would happen have to happen rather quickly because you have to um, a solidify that this is something that you did and then win over a lot of the people that you lost. Mm. So I don't even if there is something that they can do, it needs to be soon. One of the things, Stephanie, that uh, is happening, we've talked about this, we spent a bunch of time yesterday on the program speaking about the issue of immigration and the numbers of people who are coming to this country. Uh, Mark Miller, uh, the minister, has said that the government may put a cap on international students. Reports are out that the federal government was warned two years ago that immigration rates would exceed housing stock. What sort of the line of the liberals trying to walk here? And and what do you make of, of Mark Miller and others? Uh, Sean Fraser, the housing minister, is, is another person who's been speaking about this, trying to grab this issue head on. I mean, we're, we're, that, you know, talking about immigration might be one of those third rail issues in Canadian politics, because it's, it's exceptionally difficult to have a conversation about immigration levels in this country and raise the specter of tinkering with them without being accused of being racist or xenophobic. Which is why guests said yesterday that people <clears throat> haven't had that conversation. Yeah, and it's it's an unfortunate thing that we haven't had it because the issues that are currently plaguing the Canadian immigration system, I mean, date back well before Justin Trudeau's time, to be honest. But under his watch, there definitely has been a sea change um, in the, the classes, the categories of immigrants that are coming to this country, how the numbers are being adjusted, why those numbers are what they look like. And that's now catching up with the Canadian economy. And so the question becomes, how does the government, and I'll, I'll remove the partisanship out of this one, I mean, how does any government sort of adjust the mix of immigrants correctly to match economic demand and also sort of the capacity of the system to absorb immigration, and by which I mean provide health care, provide social services, yes, provide housing. Mm. And this is pretty important in the question of, of international students and temporary foreign workers in this country who are really putting a, a huge squeeze on social services because they're coming in a, in a construct where the whole thing, the whole setup of their programs is designed for for them to be part of a system that's supposed to be able to support them, right. students being a great example of that. Can you touch international student numbers and temporary foreign workers without being accused of being racist or xenophobic? Perhaps you can. But what's interesting about this issue, I think, politically, Matt, is that um, it'll be interesting to watch how and if Justin Trudeau's liberals sort of try and throw it at the conservatives, because it is the conservatives who often get accused of wanting to cut immigration, of, of having racial undertones, racist undertones in their policies. And so we could be inching towards a political third rail. But in the meantime, 
there's still a problem facing Canadians. And you saw Justin Trudeau in recent days picking up some of the language that I've seen Pierre Polyev use as well about the promise of the Canadian dream mm. now being out of reach. And I find that interesting that Mr. Trudeau is going in that direction to sort of talk about we are failing immigrants. It is not their fault. Just in the last minute or so, Carrie, let's talk about a politician who is easing her way out of the political frame in your part of the country. Rachel Notley announcing plans to step down as the leader of the NDP in Alberta. Just briefly, what sort of legacy is she leaving? Um, Rachel Notley walks away with a legacy that is uh, really recognizable. When she took over as the leader of the NDP 10 years ago, they had four caucus members in the time, of course, they're in opposition now, but it became a viable option in Alberta and formed government and not only viable option, but its competitors, um, the version of the Liberal Party out here on at one time, the Alberta Party do not exist um, in the legislature and are barely recognizable as sort of entity political entities outside of the legislature. She consolidated um that side of the floor. We look forward to hopefully talking to her before she officially leaves. In the meantime, um, we'll leave it there. And I'm glad to speak with you all this morning. Lots on the plate and certainly more discussion to come. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Shachi Kuro, president of the Angus Reid Institute, Carrie Tate, reporter with the Globe and Mail in Calgary, and Stephanie Levitz, deputy Ottawa bureau chief for the Toronto Star. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.